Saturday, January the 11th, 1997, was one of the most difficult days I experienced in over 25 years as a pastor. In the morning, there was a funeral. Nothing unusual about this. I've taken two or three hundred over the years. But this one was different. It was the funeral of a fellow pastor, a much-loved friend and colleague. Three months previously, he'd begun to suffer with severe headaches. Scans revealed a brain tumor. Surgery followed with the assurance that the problem was solved. Sadly, this was not the case. And on Friday, January the 5th, I sat by his hospital bed with his wife as he was called home into God's presence. Leaving his widow, three children, a baby just born who he saw only once. The Thanksgiving service for his life in Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh, at which I led and preached, was attended by around 700 people from all over the UK. It was a sad and solemn occasion, and following it, I accompanied the family to the cemetery for a private committal and burial. Finally, we joined everyone at a local hotel for a reception, which I had to leave early, and returned to the chapel for the joyful wedding of a couple, which had been arranged many months previously. Such is the range of experiences and emotions in the life of a church and a pastor. Thankfully, rarely in such a short space of time, though more likely in a church of 750 members rather than one of 75. It's traditional on occasions like this to focus on two aspects of the biblical role to which you have called John. That of a pastor, as along with his fellow elders, he cares for and ministers to members of the fellowship, what we might call the pastor's feet. And that of the teacher, preacher, the studier of God's word, who proclaims and shares it in public and in private, what we might call the pastor's head. I have confidence that John, with the Lord's help and the support of Rachel, will faithfully fulfill these roles as he has done in the past in different churches. And I hope to focus on the second of them tomorrow morning. Today I want to focus on something which is rarely addressed, but is an essential prerequisite to the calling of a pastor and teacher. The pastor's heart, his emotional life. And to help us, I want to focus on an example from the Bible. The perfect example, of course, of the pastor-teacher is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, described as the chief shepherd or pastor in whose footsteps all pastors should follow. But perhaps the best example of this in human experience is found in the life of Paul, the apostle, the special messenger sent by Jesus and revealed in his letters which are preserved in the New Testament part of our Bibles. Today I want briefly to look at one of the earliest, perhaps the earliest, of these letters written to Christians in the city of Thessalonica in Greece. There are some slides behind, having preached for many years, if this really annoys you and find them distracting, just look at me, uh, if it may be helpful as a prompt, I hope it will be anyway. New Testament commentator Leon Morris writes, Here in these epistles, 
we catch a glimpse of Paul the man in a way that we do not always do when he's taken up with questions of more profound theological significance. So I want to read from 1 Thessalonians and to focus and comment on part of it in the middle of the letter. On the pastor's heart, and if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to 1 Thessalonians or a phone or whatever device you use. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through to 3, 13. And I'm going to read it in three sections and comment briefly, well, briefly for me anyway, on uh, each of these sections in turn. And the first thing we learn about what Paul felt in these verses can be summarized by the words intense longing, verses 17 to 20 in chapter 2. Let me read. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, Again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Well, first of all, some background information which many of you in the church like this probably don't need to know, but in the church where I am, everybody needs to know. Let me give you some background information. Paul visited Thessalonica on his second great missionary journey. If you like maps, there's a map up there. Accompanied by a colleague named Silas, and later a younger man named Timothy, who joined them earlier in the trip as they came to his hometown of Lystra. As was his practice, he went first to the Jewish synagogue, and then for three successive Sabbaths, he explained and proclaimed the message of Christ. A number of Jews and a number of prominent women responded to the message. You can read this in book of Acts 17. However, motivated by jealousy at the growing success of the mission, other Jewish leaders hired a renter mob and a full-blown riot ensued in the city. So for the safety of all concerned, the believers sent Paul and his companions away at nighttime down the roads about 45 miles to the town of Berea. Again, they met with success, but again, they were pursued by their opponents from Thessalonica. And the believers then sent Paul across to the coast, about eight miles, and put him on a boat to Athens. And Paul describes here how he felt about this in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says it was a traumatic celebration, uh, a, a, a traumatic separation. Look what it says. This is the NIV 2011. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. The word translated orphaned in the NIV, the ESV translates torn away. It's actually a Greek word, ap orphamidzai. Uh, I hate using Greek words. Ap orphamidzai uh, literally means orphaned. It describes a parent whose child is ripped from his or her arms, unexpectedly bereaved, bereft with no time for goodbye. Paul feels like a parent in relation to these believers in Thessalonica. Earlier in chapter 2, he writes about this. He says, we were like a mother or a nursing mother caring for her little children. A few verses later, he describes himself as a father. We dealt with each of you as a father dealt with his own children. And now in verse 17 and again, in chapter 3, verse 17, he calls them brothers. Paul is a brother 
the NIV adds sisters, so it's more inclusive. Seven years ago, there was a long-running legal case in the UK hinging on the question, is the church minister an employee? I one who is subject to employment laws, and specifically in two cases, for redundancy payment when he or she, in one of the cases, is dismissed. It's a complicated issue. The courts ruled no, the appeal court ruled yes, the Supreme Court ruled no again, and I'm not sure what the final outcome is now. And I don't want to make any point regarding John's terms and conditions in this church, (laughs) of which I am and wish to remain in ignorance. But surely it is the case that every minister, every pastor, is not primarily in employment, but rather in a close personal relationship with the people, the family, whom God has placed under his care. And where that is the case, as with any personal family relationships, there are deep emotions involved. I think of another young man who served with us, like John, as an assistant. Eventually he was called to another church, and we had a nice farewell for him, and he was moved to tears in the pulpit. And one of my fellow leaders, who ought to have known better and felt better, said, what's he getting so upset about? It's only a job. Hmm. So it is with Paul, who feels orphaned by his sudden and unplanned departure and has a deep desire to see them again. He says, out of our intense longings, very strong words, we made every effort to see you. It appears there were critics of Paul in Thessalonica who said he he didn't really care about them and he'd left at the first sign of trouble. But Paul says this is not the case. He has been abandoned, bereaved by what happened. He's done all he can to get back to see them. However, despite repeated efforts, this has not been possible. And he tells them the reason for it. Notice what he says in verse 18. For he wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Interesting, isn't it? He says the reason we didn't make it back was that Satan stopped us, literally cut into blockers in our way. We don't know how or why that happened. Maybe the authorities put a banning order on Paul going back to uh, province of Macedonia, of which Thessalonica was the capital city. Maybe it was that mysterious thorn in the flesh that he talks about in his letter uh, to the church in Corinth. Some people think that was an illness like malaria or some problem with his eyes. We don't know, but what we do know, he says, is there is a battle for the health and survival of newborn Christians from Satan, the real and great enemy of Christ and his people. And it is a battle that is still going on wherever and whenever the gospel is preached, people are responding and churches are being built. What we call his church, not a building, of course, but a group of people who meet together in the name of Jesus. The devil always tries to disrupt Christian families to destroy Christian churches. And if you get involved in this, you will experience family feelings. John, you know that already. We've talked about some of the pastoral issues you've faced in the past, serious pastoral issues. And you experience feelings like you do about your own children, if you have any, and their welfare. You want them to grow up strong, to survive the attacks of Satan, to grow up strong and healthy Christians. And if for some reason you were separated from them, you will long to see them. They will constantly be in your thoughts and prayers. So that is what Paul felt and what every authentic pastor feels. His great hope, your great hope, John, in this church 
and desire is that Christians will not only survive, but will grow it, will grow, will mature in their faith and make it to the end. And then Paul says, I will rejoice when that happens. So he says he takes pride in his children, not in the wrong sense of pride, but in the right sense of thankfulness and joy for all they mean to him. But what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we'll glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. That's what every authentic pastor should feel. Every elder, every older Christian, every spiritual parent feels for younger Christians and their welfare. So if you are a new, I don't know anybody here, hardly one or two people, and that's to see them again from the past, but most of you I don't know. If you are a new baby Christian in this church, maybe a student who's come up to Cambridge, you want to belong to a church like this where you have older brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, who will be desperately concerned for your welfare, that you will survive the attacks of Satan and grow up strong and healthy Christians. And most of all, that you will make it in the end when Jesus comes again. But you and none of us have made it yet. Neither are these Christians in Thessalonica. There was a battle going on. That's why Paul writes, he desperately, intensely longs to see them again, to hear news about them. And that is followed by another strong emotion in the next section. So let's read on, and you'll see he have called it unbearable anxiety. Chapter 3, verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We wanted, we sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you, that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Finally, Paul says, I could stand it no longer. Verse 1, again in verse 5. A rare word used of impenetrable substances. Paul feels he's going to burst into the strain. How are these Christians getting on? He's got no news. How are they coping under Satan's attacks? So at personal cost, for he will be left alone in the oppressive, idolatrous atmosphere of Athens. And you can read about his response in Acts 17. He sends his young colleague Timothy, our brother, a member of the family, God's fellow worker, to visit the Thessalonians. Notice he gives two reasons for sending Timothy to them. First of all, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. The word strengthen means to build somebody up in their faith. The word encourage means to come alongside someone to give help and support. Jesus used the related word to describe the Holy Spirit, who he said would come from heaven alongside his followers to be with them and be within them. But often he sends his Holy Spirit in human terms, in human flesh. Someone to come alongside, like the Holy Spirit, to help those in need, and especially those who are in danger of being unsettled by trials. He reminds them, he told them, that they were to expect trouble. They were destined for persecution. He knows these new Christians will be tempted, are being attacked, and he is desperately concerned for them, that they will make it, and that's why he sends Timothy to them. But linked him with this is a related reason. Surely the main reason he's writing, to find out about your faith. 
Look what he says in verse 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith, for I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. Now I pause for a moment to think, this is, is this not surprising that Paul is saying this? Didn't he write to the Christians, or wouldn't he write to the Christians in Philippi, these great bumper sticker verses, you know, the ones that you can put on your wall and you find on Google? Here's a couple of examples. Confident that the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. Didn't he believe in the perseverance of the saints? Didn't he believe in one saved or was saved? Didn't he also tell the Philippians, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's the antidote to anxiety. He's written it. How do you reconcile, I've thought a lot about this, how do you reconcile what he's writing there and what he's experiencing here? Well, it would be an interesting discussion. I'd be happy to talk with the people afterwards. But let me say, I think there are two reasons. One answer is that he wrote Philippians about 10 years after he experienced this in Thessalonica. And he writes in that letter that he has learned the secret of being content in every, any and every situation. That is part of the answer. But I think his anxiety shows the battle that every Christian the tension that every pastor and preacher faces between what we know and what we experience. And I think the Apostle Paul is very honest and very human here, and I find that a great encouragement. Yeah, I know all those truths, but believe me, if I know a Christian is struggling, someone I know, I still struggle with it. I wrestle with it. Oh, I ask God to give me his peace, but I still wake up in the night worried about it and pray about it. And anguish about it. And John, you know this from your own experience. Paul shows how human he was, how strong and natural his fears and feelings were. And it is an encouragement to give an encouragement to you that you will feel that from time to time. That tension between what you know to be true and what you feel in particular situations. Thankfully, we see that Paul's fears were unfounded. We turn to the third and final emotion which I've called overwhelming joy. Let's read on in chapter 3, verse 6. But Timothy has now just come to us from you, has brought good news about your faith and love. He has said that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And then there's a kind of prayer at the end. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Uh, it's a lovely picture, isn't it? Paul's writing this letter and he looks out the window and there's Timothy coming up the path. He's just arrived. 
those who are my age and even a bit less, do you remember what it was like when we only had snail mail? You know, when before you could just send an email and get a reply before you just sent it off and wish you thought a bit more about it when you sent it off. That's another story. But you remember in the old days, my wife and I, we were the first mission team with Wycliffe Bible Translators in Pakistan in 1978. It was before the internet. Well, it's before I discovered the internet, probably. Uh, but I remember we used to send letters to our headquarters in the UK, and we reckoned it took us four weeks to get a reply. And Timothy's gone off from Athens, leaving Paul behind. Paul then moves on to Corinth, and Paul is waiting. He sent him off. He's waiting for news from Timothy. And it's quite a long way if you look at a map. It's about 350 miles, something like that. Um, even walking fast or taking a camel, I'm sure it took a long time. And he writes that Timothy has just returned. Look what he says in verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought news about your faith and love. Interesting. The verb to tell good news is usually described to tell good news about the gospel of Jesus. I think it's the only place in the New Testament where they use for good news about somebody else. But there's a close link because the good news about Jesus should produce good news about other people as well, those who receive him. So Timothy brings good news about the faith and love of the Thessalonians. First of all, about their love. He has told us, you always have pleasant memories of, of us and we, you long to see us just as we also long to see you. The fears that Paul had that the Thessalonians might have turned against him prove unfounded. Their lives are bound together in love. And so Paul is filled with joy about their love and also about their faith. Therefore, brothers, verse 7, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Paul sent Timothy to encourage him. And now, same word again, he is encouraged by them. And so we see him turning to God. In praise, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Yet he still longs to see them. Night and day we pray most earnestly to see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. That was, in fact, in God's hands. It's around five years before Paul finally made it back to the church in Thessalonica. So these are these three strong emotions that Paul felt. Intense longing, unbearable anxiety, and overwhelming joy. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary, the message of Thessalonians, uh, the Bible teacher John Stock comments on Paul's words. Very interesting. He says, what is this extravagant language I have sometimes asked myself? What is this loving and longing, this intolerable suspense, when there was no news, and this overwhelming joy when the news was good, <clears throat> this affectionate care and fervent prayer, this sense of intimate solidarity with them, so that his life was wrapped up in their life and theirs in his. And here's his answer. My answer is that this is the language of parents who are separated from their children, who miss them dreadfully, and are proud, profoundly anxious when they have had no recent news of them. Pastoral love is parental love. That is its quality. Pastoral love is parental love. And John, I know you've experienced that in the past. And 
finding a new family here. God brought you here to this church as a new family. That will take time to develop, but you will know that. You're not just starting out in ministry. You already know about the pastor's heart. You've already experienced some of the emotions described. And there's always a danger, I think, that the more this happens to us as pastors, the joys and pains, there can be a temptation, especially in a larger church, to withdraw from personal and thus emotional intimacy with God's people. Summarized by a pastor I once heard of who said, I do all my pastoral work from the pulpit. No, you also do it from the hospital bed, at the wedding, in the home, in the workplace. And as you do, you follow not only in the example of the Apostle Paul, but the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. A man who rejoiced on occasion with great joy, but who wept over his own people in his own city, who burst into tears, at the grave of a loved friend who had died. In his book, Preaching and Preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Our Lord looked out upon the multitude and saw them as sheep without a shepherd and was filled with compassion. And if you know nothing of this, you should not be in a pulpit, for this is certain to come out in your preaching. John, I know we've talked some of the cases over the past, You've been involved very deeply with individuals. Do continue that. Continue. Because as you do that, it earths what you preach because it's earthed in reality. It's applying what you learn in pastoral situations in your preaching as God's word answers some of those questions that you're addressing with people as individuals. I also want to talk about, nearly to the end, so relax. I also want to talk about the danger of withdrawing from some of us here, maybe. There was a 2015 report on the state of Christianity in Scotland by the Barner organization. It's called Transforming Scotland. Here's what it reported. The presence of more than 800,000 Scots, 17% of the population, who report that they have confessed Jesus as Savior and made a commitment to him that is still important in their life today, even though nearly half of them do not currently attend church. Now, I'm skeptical about the first figure of 800,000. I'd be delighted if it were true. But not about the second. 50% of professing Christians who no longer attend church I'm deeply concerned about the increasing number of Christians who have become disillusioned with church, deeply hurt by church, have given up on local church, either by not attending at all or attending without any real involvement, without any risk of getting hurt. Some of you may be here today. I don't know you. I know as a pastor some of the pain you feel. I've listened to some of the pains that people have experienced. But you must not give upon the local church because the Lord has not given upon his local church. He loved the church and gave himself for the church. Commit yourself to a local church like the one here. And finally, it would be a dereliction of my duty and privilege as a minister of the gospel to speak to any here who are not yet members 
of a local church because they are not yet members of Christ's family. Christ loved you enough to lay down his life for you so that you might become a child of God. The opening chapter of John's Gospel tells us he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. His own did not receive him. And then it describes how to become a family member. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And in the society in which we live that is starved of human relationships, what could be better for you than to know that you are God's loved child and you belong to a living family like this here, here at Eden and loving elders and pastor. I'm sure there are people here who'd be delighted to tell you how you can do that. And so let's finish with the final prayer for all of us, pastor and people, a prayer for God's people. From Paul's words in verses 12 and 13, I've just changed the pronoun slightly. So let me invite you to stand up with me and we're going to say these verses together if you're confident to say them. And then at the end of this, we'll go straight into our next song, which is Hapoma Foundation. Yeah, that is, yeah, okay, thank you. Let's say these words together. May the Lord make our love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. May he strengthen our hearts so that we'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen. Amen.